Let's turn around and fellowship one with another. Be sure to welcome our visitors. Let them know how glad we are to have them. Blessing to my heart to sing thy praise. Let's sing that this morning. Come thy page 35. Call them off right over here. Come thy fountain of every blessing.
Thank you. You may be seated. Let's set our ushers come forward to receive our offering. And if you are visiting with us today, we'd appreciate so much if you'd take just a moment to fill out a visitor's card. If you were given a bulletin as you came in this morning, there's a card in there you can use. If not, there are some cards in the back of the pews. But we'd like to get to know you, and we want you to get to know us a little bit better. And we'd like to send you some information this week about the church. So if you'll fill one out, I would appreciate that so much. Let me take just a moment this morning to say thank you to so many of you uh, for all that you have done over the past several days and some of you for the past several weeks. As I mentioned, beginning of the service had a great week this week in our Bible conference, the morning services, the evening services, and our largest group of guests yet to have come in and be in the conference. It was just a great week, but I owe so much to so many of you, and I want you to know personally how much I appreciate everything that you did. For all of you ladies that fixed food, brought in cakes and different things, for you that worked in the kitchen and different things like that, I want you to know how much I am indebted to you. Many of you came in early on the morning before you went to work. You just got to work an hour or something, and then many of you were here late. But I want you to know that it is deeply appreciated by me and many others for all of you that worked. And then, of course, our musicians, Mary Jo and Patty, they took off to be here this week. I appreciate them being here. We couldn't have had the morning services like they were if not for them. And then the choir, I tell you, listen, the choir really showed off this week. They really did. They really uh, reared back and let it rip. It was great. And I appreciate it. But I want you to know, for all of you, everybody that has given over the past year and uh, to the conference on Wednesday night, any special gifts that have come in, anything that you have done, I want you to know that I am very appreciative of it. And all that we did this past week, we could not have done if it hadn't been for all of you. And I know the Lord will bless you for it. I know He's going to bless the church for it. He has blessed our church for it and will continue to do so. So may I say thank you to each of you. And then, of course, I want to remind you that uh, today is Brother Brian's last Sunday with us. And I don't know if it's the will of God or not, but he has taken a church in West Virginia. And we just hope it's the will of God, whatever. He asked me the other day if I'd come hold a meeting for him. And I will. I listen. I, I'll go up there and just cuss those folks out for tell, seldom. Say amen. Listen, he won't want me back anymore. But anyway... Uh, today is Brian's last day. He served here for almost four years, a little four years, and has done a great job, and we appreciate Brian. Tonight, after the service, of course, in the service tonight, we're going to recognize Brian. We have a few things to give him. And then after the service, we'll be having a fellowship, and this is a time for you to have a personal moment to thank Brian and let him know how much you love him and appreciate him, and also maybe a gift that you'd want to give him. We'll do something for him as a church but you want to, may want to do something as well to let Brian and Lisa know how much we have enjoyed them and their ministry among us these past four years. And certainly we will be praying for them, and he'll do a great job in, uh, what is it, Dry Fork, West Virginia? Glen Fork. Glen Fork. Just as long as it don't end up Dry Fork, amen? But Glen Fork, West Virginia. I told him the other day it's Knife and Fork. So whatever it is, uh, we're proud of him. Let's pray now. And you give today. Let me read a card real quickly that was given to us this morning. It said, we want to thank you for your love and prayers and for being a wonderful church family. May God bless and keep you. This is love, Robert and Jennifer. And we appreciate this card. Let's pray and you give today and be faithful in your giving. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to give to you 
Bless the offering now and continue to open our hearts up to what you have for us in this service. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen.
Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Our prayer should be that everything we say, everything we sing, everything we do in our lives as his children should lift up Jesus Christ so that he might be seen high and lifted up as Jesus Christ. i 
Amen. Let's take our Bibles and be finding the book of Colossians chapter 2, if you would please, the book of Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to look at about three verses of Scripture today. And I would say to you that these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. I've preached from them many times, but I want to look at them again this morning. And I want to share with you a thought that is upon my heart. I want for a few Sunday mornings just to share with you a few thoughts about the cross of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at the cross from different aspects. This morning I want to borrow a title from one of the songs that the choir sings to emphasize these verses in our text, and that is this title, It's Still the Cross. I want you to stand as we honor the reading of His Word, Colossians 2. And I want us to look at verse 13, verse 14, and verse 15. And I want to remind you this morning in the message that it is still the cross. Verse 13, Colossians chapter 2. The Bible said in you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Thank you. you may be seated. Let's pray. And then this morning, for the next few moments, I'll share with you a few thoughts that I am simply calling is still the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, indeed, you are high and lifted up. We thank you, Lord, for that blessed day when you were lifted up on Calvary's cross. We thank you, Lord, for what it means to us today that you were lifted up as Moses' serpent in the wilderness. But we also thank you, Lord, that you are a risen Savior and you have been high and lifted up and given a name that is above every name. So we come today to worship you as our resurrected and exalted and glorified Lord. But we do thank you for the cross. And we ask you, Lord, now for this morning and for the next few Sunday mornings to draw our hearts toward the cross. Help us, Lord, to learn about the cross. Help us, Lord, to appreciate the cross. Help us, Lord, to become better acquainted and more adoring of what you have done for us on the cross. So, Holy Spirit, we submit to you today and yield to you today, asking you that you might be Lord over what I say and Lord over what is done and Lord over this service. Open our hearts. Speak to us now. Help us to learn your word, for it is in the name of Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen. A very outspoken and controversial figure in our day is a man by the name of John Shelby Spong. Some of you may have heard that name or recognized the name. He is the Episcopal Bishop of Newark in New Jersey. He has written at least 15 books, including the national bestseller, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism and Why Christianity Must Change or Die. I have listened to Bishop Spong on talk shows and read reviews 
all of these books and different things. And because of what I had heard and what I had read, I went a few days ago to Barnes & Noble to pick up a couple of his books. I wanted to read a little bit more what he had to say about certain subjects and whatever. I walked up to the counter where you go in, and I asked the young man at the counter, I said, do you have any of Bishop Spong's books? And he quickly said, oh, yes, we have several of Bishop Spong, John Spong's books. They are located in the Christian Inspiration section. Well, before I know it, I knew it, I said, well, I'm not sure that's where they belong, but thank you for your help. And the reason I said that was because John Spong, in my opinion, is one of the most liberal men that I've ever heard of, listened to, or read after. I would classify John Spong as being the liberal of all liberals. For example, in his book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, he has this to say about the Apostle Paul, and I quote, he said, Paul was not a universal scholar. He was not even a good biblical scholar. He studied the content of his holy scriptures, but he was not as conversant with the background and history and formation of the Old Testament as any graduate from accredited seminary in England or the United States would be today, end quote. He also writes, and I quote, Paul cannot be taken literally. He did not write the Word of God. He wrote the words of Paul, a particular, limited, frail human being, end quote. I want you to listen to this, what he had to say about Paul. He suggested that perhaps Paul's thorn in the flesh that plagued him was that he was a deeply repressed, self-rejecting homosexual. He writes these words, and I quote, The war that went on between what he desired with his mind and what he desired with his body, his drivenness to a legalistic religion of control, his fear of when that system was threatened, his attitude toward women, his refusal to seek marriage as an outlet for his passion, nothing else accounts for this data as well as the possibility that Paul was a gay male, end quote. I think about in his book, Why Christianity Must Change or Die, he makes this statement, and really this is a very revealing statement about Mr. Spong. It reveals why he believes such things about Paul, does not believe in the virgin birth, does not believe in the resurrection and so on, or even the deity of Christ. Here's the reason why. And he said, and I quote, The Bible is not the Word of God in any literal or verbal sense. It never has been. The Gospels are not inerrant works divinely authored. They were written by communities of faith and they express even the biases of those communities, end quote. Now, there's his problem. He don't believe the Bible. If a man doesn't believe the Bible, he will not believe in the virgin birth. He will not believe in the resurrection of Christ or even the deity of Christ. You got to believe the Bible. That's his problem. But what is even more disturbing than what he has to say about the Bible and what he has to say about the Apostle Paul is what he has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he has to say about the virgin birth. He said, and I quote, Stars do not wonder, angels do not sing, virgins do not give birth, magi do not travel to a distant land to present gifts to a baby, and shepherds do not go in search of a newborn Savior. 
And he adds, I know of no reputable biblical scholar in the world today who takes these birth narratives literally. Does that mean that the virgin birth story is not literally true? Let me answer this categorically. The virgin birth tradition of the New Testament is not literally true. It should not be literally mine or believed, end quote. I would guess that Mr. Spong this morning would not classify me as a reputable biblical scholar because I do believe that a star wondered and angels sang and magi did travel to a distant land and shepherds did search for a newborn baby, a savior, and a virgin did give birth to a baby whose name was called Jesus. And may I add this morning, I am proud to be in that non-reputable group. Can I get an amen right there? But I think about in his book, Why Christianity Must Change or Die, he has a chapter entitled, Jesus as Rescuer, an image that has to go. And he writes, and I quote, Sometimes the deadwood of the past must be cleared out so that the new life has a chance to grow. With regard to, to the Jesus story, that step becomes vital and urgent. Not every image used to explain Jesus is worthy of survival. The most obvious candidate for dismissal in my mind is also perhaps the oldest of all the interpretations of Jesus. And I refer to that image of Jesus as the divine rescuer, end quote. He also writes, and I quote, I would choose to loathe rather to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son, end quote. He continues, why would anyone be drawn to the image of a divine rescuer who with his self-sacrifice would pay the price of sin? The traditional understanding of salvation history and the various theories of the atonement all come tumbling down at this point, and this includes the interpretation we have traditionally imposed upon the cross of Calvary. And then he concludes the chapter by writing, A Savior who restores us to our pre-fallen status is therefore pre-Darwian superstition and post-Darwian nonsense. A supernatural redeemer who enters our fallen world to restore creation is a theistic myth, so we must free Jesus from this rescue role, end quote. What Mr. Spong is telling us is that we must change our ideals about the cross of Calvary. If we don't, Christianity is going to die. But I would submit to Mr. Spong, you take the cross out of Christianity and Christianity would die. And I would say to Mr. Spong and all the liberals like him and to everybody in this room today, I would say to you this morning, regardless of what they say, it is still the cross of Jesus Christ. You take the great text before us and we're reminded of the absolute essential of the cross. And men may deny and men may doubt and men may debase and men may debate and decry and degrade and denigrate the subject of the cross, but the cross remains as a historical and a biblical and a spiritual and an eternal essential. 
and John Spong and everyone like him will come and go and we non-reputable preachers will still be saying it is still the cross of Jesus Christ. And if time stands for 1,000 years, the saints of God will still be singing at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. What I'm saying to you this morning is this, that it is still the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at our text, and I point out three things from our text that reminds me of the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. I look at one in verse 13, one from verse 14, and one from verse 15. Are you with me now? Say amen. The first thing that I want to remind you of is this. You'll notice in verse 13 that it is still the cross where Jesus dealt with the sins that corrupted us. It is still the cross. That is the place where Jesus dealt with the sins that corrupted us. Verse 13, the Bible said, "...in you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2 tells us that it was at the cross that God dealt with our sins. Now that may be doubted by some, and that may be denied by some, but it is still the cross where God dealt with the sins that corrupted us. Look at the verse, and I point out two things about the sins that corrupted us. For one thing, you notice in the verse that it describes a condition that is so grievous, a condition so grievous. It talks about our condition in verse 13. It describes our condition as being a dead condition. We were dead, verse 13 said. And the Bible is declaring that we lack spiritual life. And just like a dead person no longer possesses physical life, we did not possess spiritual life. We were dead. But it also describes our condition as being depraved. It tells us that we were dead in sins, and in the latter part of verse 13, in trespasses. You see the word sins and trespasses? They're actually the same word. And it's a word that describes a fall or a lapse or a deviation from the truth and uprightness. What he's saying is that we were not only dead, but that we were fallen creatures. And we walked in a path that deviated from the truth and from that which was upright. What is our condition that is so grievous? We were dead and we were depraved. But our text also tells us that the condition was demonstrated. For it talks about the uncircumcision of your flesh. You see, our condition of being dead and our condition of being depraved was manifested in our flesh. What we were on the inside about. He is describing condition, a condition that was helpless. He is describing a condition that was hopeless. We were dead, we were depraved, and it was demonstrated in our life. But thank God that's where the cross comes in. For you not only see a condition so grievous, but second of all, you see a cleansing so glorious. For we read that He hath quickened us together with Him, having forgiven you of all trespasses. You ought to underline that word forgiven there. Lay your Bible down and run for about 10 minutes. We were dead. We were depraved. It was demonstrated in our life. But thank God at the cross, God dealt with our sins and He forgave us of our sins. You know how God dealt with our sins? You know where God dealt with our sins? He dealt with our sins at Calvary. I think about Brownlow North, an English preacher. 
And he was preaching in a northern town in England. And as he was about to enter the vestry of the church, a stranger walked up to him or rushed up to him and said, here's a letter for you of great importance, and you're requested to read it before you preach. And then they ran off. Well, Brownlow North thought it might be a prayer request, so he immediately opened it, and he found that the letter contained a list of many sinful things he had done in his life. And he concluded with the words, How dare you? Being conscious of the truth of all the above, pray and speak to the people this evening when you are such a vile sinner. Brownlow North folded the letter up, put it back in his coat pocket. He entered the pulpit that night, and before he preached, he took the letter out, and he told the people of its contents. And this is what Brownlow North said. He said, all that is here is said is true. And it is a correct picture of the degraded sinner that I once was. And oh, how wonderful must be the grace be that could quicken and raise me from such a death in trespasses and sin and make me what I appear before you tonight, a vessel of mercy, one who knows that all of his past sins have been cleansed away through the atoning blood of the Lamb of God. May I say this morning, that's the testimony of every one of us in this room. We were dead. And we were depraved, and it was demonstrated in our life. But we can stand up this morning and testify that the blood of God's Son has cleansed us from all of our sins. And we can sing from the depths of our soul, I know a fount where sins are washed away. I know a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes are made to see. There's wonder-working power in the blood of Calvary. We have been forgiven. Can I get an amen right there. He has dealt with our sins. Look at the text. The Bible tells us that God has freely forgiven our sins. You see the word forgiven that is used in verse 13? It is a word, the word that is used here actually stems from the word that we get the word grace. And it talks about something that is undeserved. It talks about something that has been freely bestowed. We all can sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You see, we had nothing to offer God but our sins. There was nothing we had to bargain with or nothing to merit His forgiveness, but God forgave us anyway. He forgave us freely. But not only to give us freely, look in verse 13, He forgave us fully. Notice this, having forgiven you all trespasses. I put a circle around the word all in my Bible. Having forgiven you all trespasses. He forgave us of all our sins. I don't know about you, but if you'd wrote my sins down on a piece of paper, each sin on one single sheet of paper, and sacked it up, it would have stretched somewhere out into eternity. But blessed be God, when Jesus went to the cross, He dealt with my sins, and He has freely and fully forgiven me of my sins. He has forgiven us of all our sins. I think about a story I recently read in one of Ian Paisley's books. He described this preacher. He talked about this preacher that was called one evening to a slum area in the city that he labored. And he made his way along this dismal, narrow street until at last down an alleyway he entered a cold, damp garret. And there huddled on a bed of straw in the corner lay the form of a once beautiful young woman but now whose body was blighted and diseased and dying as a result of the wicked and immoral life she had lived. 
And the preacher, after listening to her story, opened his Bible, began to read to her scriptures, but none of the scriptures that he read seemed to satisfy the longing of her soul. And then finally turned to Isaiah 1.18. And he read the scripture, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The young woman raised herself up. And she said, Preacher, that verse describes me. I am a scarlet sinner. And then she asked him to do a very unusual thing. She said, Would you put my finger on the word scarlet? And the preacher reached over and took that feeble hand and he placed her finger on the word scarlet. And then he said to her, Young lady, you are now at the first S, scarlet. If you will now accept Jesus as your Savior, place your finger on the second S, snow. And the woman hesitated for just a moment, and then slowly she moved her finger over to the word snow. And then she laid back in her bed, and a few moments she passed in the presence of the one who by a simple act of faith washed her scarlet sins as white as snow. I want you to know this morning, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it is still the cross. If it had not been for the cross, our sins would have never been dealt with. God washes our sins as white as snow, and it's because of the cross. Can't you say glory to that? Amen. But let me point out a second thing in our text. I say to you, not only it is still the cross, where God dealt with the sins that corrupted us, but it is also still the cross where God or Jesus dealt with the law that condemned us. Look at verse 14. Colossians 2, 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, right there to me is one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. And I can't help but get blessed when I read it. If you don't get happy about this, then that, just forgive me. I love this verse. For Jesus at the cross not only dealt with the sins that corrupted us, but he also dealt with the law that condemned us. Verse 14, Paul describes the law as a debt that was owed. You see that phrase, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us? It describes a certificate of debt on which the signature of the debtor was inscribed. It would be much like an IOU or our signing a banknote when we borrow money. And our signature is the guarantee or the indication that we are going to pay that money back. But the picture that is used in verse 14 is that of an unpaid debt that has been turned over to a bill collector. That bill collector was the law. And the law, there was this debt that we owed a debt that we could not pay. As Romans said, we came short of the glory of God. But the law was crying out for payment. We were in default. And we could not pay what the law demanded. The law numbered our sins. And the law listed our sins. And the law was crying out, you are in serious default. And the law was crying out for payment. But the problem was, as you all know, we could not pay the debt. We could not meet the demands of the law. It was a debt that we owed. It was a debt that I owed. It was a debt that you owed. But it was a debt beyond our capacity to repay. But thank God for the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? Look at two things in verse 14. For one thing, the text said that he cleansed 
the record of our sins. You notice the words blotting out. The words speak of erasing something or wiping out something or rubbing something out or obliterating something. The substance on which ancient documents was written in those days was either a papyrus or a vellum. Papyrus was a kind of paper that was made from the pith of the bulrush and vellum was made of animal skins. Both of them were very expensive and thus they could not be wasted. So oftentimes the paper would be reused. Ancient ink in those, day, in those days had no acid in it. Thus it kind of lay on the paper. It did not bite into the paper like modern ink does. So sometimes a scribe in order to save paper would take a sponge and wipe that writing off so the paper could be reused. Now, here's what he's, Jesus did for us. Here is the list of all of our sins, all of the things that I had ever done, all of the things that you had ever done. The law was crying out for payment, but yet we were in serious default. There was no way we could meet that payment. There was no way we could fulfill the law. There is no way that we could meet the demands of the law, but yet the law was saying, pay me. Pay me now or you die. But on the cross, Jesus Christ took my list of sins and he took your list of sins and he blotted them out. Or to put it another way, he wiped our slate clean. I remember a few years ago, I got this letter from our beloved Internal Revenue Service. And this letter... I read it, and I reread it, and I reread it again. And I thought I understood what it said, but I wasn't sure. I don't think they knew what they wrote. But anyway, I read it, and I reread it. And so finally, I decided I'd take it over to my account, Brother James, back here. And I said, read this. Tell me what it's saying. I think I understand what it says, but will you tell me? So he read it, looked up at me, and said, Sir, they're saying that you owe them such and such an amount because you have filed your taxes late. Now, I don't know how you do it. I, I had not filed my taxes late, but again, I don't know how you do it. I don't file my taxes one day early. I don't file them one day late. They're going to get it the last minute, April the 15th, and that's the only time they're going to get it. Say amen right there. They don't spend it the way they ought to, so I'm going to be slow about getting it to them, amen. But I'm never late. I'm never a day early, but I'm never late. So I wrote them a letter and told them that I had sent my returns in on the 15th, and the only hope I had was that they had saved the envelope with the, uh, the postmark on it when it had been mailed and whatever, and I asked them to check the postmark on the envelope. Well, months and months went by, and I didn't hear anything. So one day I decided I would call them, and they didn't really run that thing up there. I mean, penalties and interest and whatever. When you make $100,000 a year like I do, it really adds up fast. And so I finally called them. And I, they kept me on the phone until the next April the 15th, if you know what I'm talking about. And finally when they got on the telephone, the only thing they could tell me was it was being reviewed. Well, a couple more months went by, and finally one day I got this certified letter in the mail, and, after re and the letter said had a lot of things, and then finally it said, after reviewing your file, your record has been corrected, and all charges and penalties have been removed. I thought, well, that's kind of like what Jesus did for me on the cross. 
You could say that on the cross, Jesus had my file that listed my debt. It was a debt that I owed. And the penalties and the charges had so accumulated over the years, it was impossible for me to repay them back. Even if I tried through a lifetime, there would be no way to pay them back. But yet Jesus took my list of sins and he told me that all the charges and all the penalties had been removed. He blotted them out. He cleansed the record of my sins. But look at the second thing. This blesses me. He not only cleansed the record of my sins, but he canceled the requirement of my sins. Look at this. We also read that he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In those days, if a man owed a debt and there was a bond or a contract which he had signed that he owed that debt, when that debt was paid, you didn't get it in the mail. You didn't go down to the office or your creditor or whatever and pick up the contract, mark paid. But the way they did it in those days, the creditor would take the canceled bond and nail it over the door of the one that owed the debt. And by nailing it over the door of the one that owed the debt, he was signifying, it was an act that signified this debt has now been paid. Are you listening to me? Jesus not only blotted my record out, but he took the old contract that stated my debt and he nailed it to his cross to say that my debt had not only been cleansed, but it had been paid for. That's why we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it as white as snow. Are you listening to me? I don't care what Mr. Spong has to say. I don't care what the liberals have to say. It is still the cross where God dealt with our sins. And it is still the cross where God dealt with the law that condemned us. But look at verse 15 and the third and the final thing. It is not only still the cross where Jesus dealt with the sins that corrupted us and the law that condemned us, but in verse 15, it is still the cross where Jesus dealt with the enemy that controlled us. Look at verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You see, friend, we were not only corrupted by sin, and we were not only condemned by the law, but we were also controlled by Satan and his evil forces. But at the cross... Jesus not only dealt with the sins that corrupted us and the law that condemned us, but he also dealt with the enemy that controlled us. Notice what he did. Three things I see in verse 15 he did to our enemy. For one thing, Jesus defeated our enemy. Verse 15 said he triumphed over them. He triumphed over principalities and powers. Can I give you a trivet translation of that statement? I remember when Tim was just a little bitty fellow, about two years old. He had a couple little sayings that he would say. He'd ball up his little fist and his little walker. He'd say, you're aching for a breaking. But another little saying that he had, and we had taught him, he'd ball his fist up and he'd say, I'm going to give you a whipping and a half. Can I say what verse 15 said is that Jesus gave Satan a whipping and a half on the cross. He triumphed over him. Back in 1986, I visited the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium. And I saw that great mound that has been reared there with the great bronze Belgium lion sitting on the top. The scene where 
English seemed defeated, but the commander cried out, Boys, can you think of giving way? Remember all England. And the tide turned, and the man who was called by his troops, his old 200,000, was turned away and defeated. And ever since then, defeat has been associated with Waterloo. I want you to know Calvary was Satan's Waterloo. Jesus defeated our enemy. But look also in verse 15. He not only defeated our enemy, he disarmed our enemy. He spoiled principalities and powers. See, the word spoil is a word that means to put away. And a metaphor was used of a person who strips off his clothes. And the word is used here in this text for the stripping the, wep- for stripping the weapons and the armor from a defeated foe, to disarm that foe. You see, Jesus not only defeated our enemy, but he also disarmed our enemy. I love Hebrews 2.14. For as much then as the children of partakers in flesh and blood, he also likewise himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. That word destroy, you know what it means? It is a word that carried the ideal of a stinger being pulled out of a bee. You know what Jesus did to Satan on the cross? He pulled his stinger out, glory to God. He defeated him. He disarmed him. But thirdly, he disgraced him. For verse 15 said that he made a show of them openly. The words speak of making a public spectacle. It was used of Joseph when he did not want to make Mary a public example. You remember that statement? The picture is used of a Roman triumph. Whenever a Roman general in those days had won a notable victory, he was allowed to march his victorious armies through the streets of Rome. And it's a great time of celebration. Crowds would line the way, and they they would come through the general in his pulled in a chair of white horses, and there, and with all of his marching victorious army behind him, but also chained to the wheels of his chariot, would be the leaders of those or the generals or the captains of those he had vanquished. And they were chained to his chariot and were being openly branded as spoils. And it was a time of public humiliation. Not only as they cheered the general, but they sneered the conquered general. He made a show of them, the Bible said. In other words, at the cross, Jesus not only defeated Satan and not only disarmed Satan, but he also disgraced Satan. I want you to know something. Here's the good thing about it, and he's not through with him yet. Can I get an amen there? He is a defeated foe. What am I saying to you this morning? What am I saying to you today? I am saying to you that it is still the cross. The John Spongs may come along and say that our ideals of Calvary have been traditionally imposed and that we must free ourselves from Jesus, the image of Him as a divine rescuer. But I say to you this morning, it is still the cross where Jesus dealt with the sins that corrupted us. It is still the cross where Jesus dealt with the law that condemned us. And it is still the cross where he dealt with the enemy that controlled us. I say with Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. It's still the cross. Choir, I want them to sing it. I want them to sing that song, it's still the cross. And I want you to stand. 
It is still the cross. Are you listening to me this morning? There can be no forgiveness of sins apart from the work of the cross. There could be no deliverance from the penalty of the law and the penalty of sin if it had not been for the cross. And Satan would not have been defeated if it had not been for the cross. Listen to me. Regardless of what this politically correct world generation may say and the John Spons and the others like it, I want to say to you this morning, it is still the cross of Jesus. And we sing in just a moment, I want you to let the truth of the song sink into your heart, the truth of the Word of God sink into your heart, and I want you today to thank God for the cross. It's still the cross. And there may be some of you today in this room that has never had your sins forgiven. I want you to know today Jesus died on Calvary that you might be forgiven of your sins and that you might come. One of the things I, 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 can't, I think about these liberals denying the cross and Calvary, I think about how do you justify the guilt of sin? How do you explain away that burden on the inside and that burden of a life in the grip of sin? How do you set them free? You can't really justify that. You can't give an explanation for it. But I can tell you how. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. And there may be some today that need to come to the cross. There may be some of you today that need to come unite with our church. Serving God and being in the will of God is a very important part of your life. And where you go to church is a very, very important part of the will of God for your life. And God is leading some of you here. You ought to get in here. You ought to come and say, I'm going to get in here. I'm going to get attached to a church. This is my church where I can serve God, where I can give, where I can be faithful to God. But it is still the cross. J.C., sing it. And I want you to come today and listen to the great song. It is still the cross. You believe that? Say amen. It is still the cross. Absolutely. You get up out of your seat and come while they sing. Yes. It's not conservative or liberal. However, they're defined. Get up out of your seat and come. It's not about interpretation. God is speaking to your heart. It's a cross. Or the judgment of the mind. Yes. It's the opposite politics. Yes, it is. Power or prestige. Yes. It's about a simple message. And that's what it is. And whether we that's it. It's still the cross, still the blood of Calvary. Yes, it is. That cleanses sin. Yes, it is. It hadn't changed. And sets the captive right. free. Sing it. Still the name. Yes, it is. The name of Jesus. Yes. That has Still the cross. Oh, yes, it is. Listen now. Amen. We can water down theology. Outdated. Preach the word to suit our needs. Yes. We can justify sweet, subtle lies that are wrapped in images that have to go. We can oh, answer yes. our convictions right. to adapt to social health. Listen now. But we cannot change the gospel. Right. All the truth contained within. Still the cross. Still the cross. Yes, it is. Amen. Still the blood of Calvary. Absolutely. Yes. Still the name 
Sing this chorus with her in a moment. Sing it out. Be proud to be identified with that non-reputable group. Still the cross. Yes. Yes, he did. Amen. It's not traditions. It's a transforming truth. Yes, it is. Let's sing it now. Sing it out to the Lord. At the cross, at the cross, sing it. First saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Yes, it was there by faith I received. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Praise God. <laughs> I promise you one thing. It was not traditions imposed upon me that brought me to my knees in an altar in 1972, but a glorious truth of somebody that could set me free and lift the heavy burden of sin in my life. It's a cross. Don't ever forget it. Live under the cross. Never, as the old Puritan said, get more than 24 hours away from the cross. Just live. Meet God at the cross every day. Are you glad to be saved this morning? I want you back tonight. Tonight, we began the book of Joshua. I've been looking forward to Joshua for a long time. It's a book of victory. And if you really want to know what the Christian life is all about, then Joshua's the book. If you really want to know how to live victoriously, Joshua's the book. Tonight, we're going to be thinking about I'm living in Canaan now. So you want to be here tonight, 630. You're dismissed. Shake hands and fellowship.